Good morning once again. Can I have you uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. If you're new with us, we want to welcome you and just let you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday morning here at Calvary. And we are in a section which is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5 through 7. This morning we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 7 in a section that I think has to be one of the most misunderstood and misapplied portions of Scripture in all the New Testament. Uh, It starts with a simple statement by Jesus in verse 1, where he said, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, folks, even unbelievers have memorized this verse. In fact, I'm telling you, I can't tell you how many times Christians have told me as they were witnessing to unsaved friends, that they began to, you know, uh, show them or explain to them that the life that they were living and the things they were doing were against what God had commanded in his word. Immediately, they invoked Matthew 7, 1. Wait a minute now. You're judging me. Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And I understand the world thinking that way, not wanting to receive any kind of instruction or correction from God's word uh, in their lives. And so they will invoke that. But it's really sad to see how many Christians are taking the same attitude and misusing the statement by Jesus to also escape any godly instruction or correction when they are involved in worldly or even sinful behavior. You know, as we pointed out last week, we are commanded in the New Testament to keep each other accountable as Christians. Accountable to what God has said in his word. Paul alluded to this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, when he said, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man, or of course woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, Paul in saying that is implying that, look, if you see somebody that needs to be corrected, instructed, or even reproved from the Word of God because of the way they're living, well, it implies you have to make a judgment, right? You have to make a judgment as to how they're living, which then causes you to say, look, you're living contrary to what God has said. And I love you too much to let you just go on with, I'm your brother or I'm your sister. And I care about you. I want you to be all that God wants you to be. And so, you know, I want to see you make the necessary corrections. But to do that, you have to make a judgment as to how they're living, that they're not living uh, in accordance with what God has said. Now, unfortunately, today, when you try to reprove or correct or instruct uh, many Christians, not all, of course, but many from God's word who are living, uh, you know, maybe it's not flat out sin, but there's a lot of compromise there and carnality, or maybe they are flat out involved in some sin that they're living in. When you try to go to them to correct them, to instruct them, and so on from God's word, often they will accuse you of judging them, which they say violates what Jesus said right here in Matthew 7, verse 1. But we asked this question last week, is that what Jesus meant when he said this? Did he really mean that we were never to judge anyone at any time for anything? And we showed you last week, and if you weren't here, get the CD, because we did go into various portions of the New Testament to show that, no, that's not in the Old Testament. To show, no, that's not what God commanded. God never said that we were to be disconnected from each other's lives as believers to the point where I don't care what you do. Look, are we our brother's keepers? Yeah. Cain didn't think so, but the Bible says so. 
we are all members of the body of Christ, right? And I'll give you just one other one I think we mentioned last time. But, you know, Jesus said in John 7, verse 24, he said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Again, no, we are not to judge superficially based on a person's outward appearance, given, of course, that that appearance is not flat out immoral. But so many times Christians want to judge each other based on outward appearance. That's unrighteous judgment. We're forbidden from doing that because God looks at the heart. And sometimes we get preoccupied with the outside, don't we? And it causes us to make wrong judgments. God looks at the heart. But listen, that doesn't negate the reality of us judging righteously. Jesus said, but judge with righteous judgment. Look, the things that God says are wrong are things that we can say, look, if you're living in that uh, that way and you're you're living in a way that's uh, contrary to what God has said, I'm judging that that is wrong from God's word. And I want to see you get right with God so we can begin to really bless you again. That is not wrong. In fact, we are not only instructed to do that, we are commanded to do that to judge sin, immorality, and so on when we see it. We're not just to look the other way. As Paul said, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. We need to be accountable to each other, and so on. So then, what did Jesus mean when he said, Judge not that you be not judged? Well, again, to understand this, and we're still reviewing from last week, but to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to look, and this goes for any portion of Scripture that you want to determine what what God is really saying. Look at the context. And here, to understand this statement, you've got to look at the whole context, the whole Sermon on the Mount. And all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ has been warning us to beware of superficial, hypocritical religion that only deals with the outward, but leaves the heart untouched. That's religion, folks. It only surface cleanses a person's life, makes you like a whitewashed tomb, but does nothing to deal with the defilement in the human heart. And that's what God's looking at. We can fool each other by scrubbing up, cleaning up, and getting dressed up, and coming to church and look like everything is fine. But God knows what's going on in our private lives and in the private thoughts of our heart. And he wants to get at those things. And all throughout the sermon, the group of men that Jesus has been constantly using as as an example of how not to live and what not to do are the scribes and Pharisees, who were the epitome of putting all the emphasis on the outward actions while they left their own corrupted hearts undealt with. They thought they were righteous because they prayed a lot, even on the street corners. Look at me, you know, Matthew 6. I'm so holy. I can't even wait to get to the temple. I have to stop right here on the street corner and offer up long prayers. See how righteous I am? Or because they fasted twice a week. Or because they gave money to the poor. They thought that that made them righteous and better than all the others who didn't do these things, which made them look down to judge them and look down on others. You know, Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 15, to these very scribes and Pharisees, he said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And what Jesus is saying to these guys is, look, you go around acting so pious and holy. You got everybody fooled. In fact, as we said many times, uh, there was a saying among the Jews at this time. Uh, They believed that if only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. That's how holy these guys came across to the general public. And yet God sees the heart, Jesus said. And all these works, all these religious things, 
that you're putting your trust in, what they're doing is they're keeping you from true faith. They're keeping you from me. Your religion, and I shudder to think as we get to later on in chapter 7, all the religious folks that have gone to church all their lives who stand before Jesus that day and hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they respond by saying, Lord, didn't we go to church, cast out demons, do many wonderful things in your name? He said, I, I never knew you depart from me. Because religion will not save you. You need a relationship based on your faith in Christ. All this religion, if it's not rooted in a true relationship with Jesus Christ, is nothing but an abomination in the sight of God. Because it gives people a false sense of righteousness, a false sense of security. It, it, it immunizes them. You get enough self-righteousness pumped into your heart. It immunizes you from the real thing. And that's the problem with religion. It gives us a false sense of security and a false sense that we're right with God when really it's nothing but outward actions and rituals and ceremonies. And if it keeps you away from the true and living God, well, then it's an abomination. And that's what Jesus said. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. For the Pharisees, that was all their religious stuff. Theirs was a self-righteousness based on their works. And in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus also spoke, it says, this parable to some, the Pharisees, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, listen, despised others. You see, that's the outgrowth of self-righteousness. Self-righteous people are always very smug and haughty. They always judge and look down on those who don't live like they live. That's the problem. And so really the context here, why Jesus said this in verse 1, he was speaking against the scribes and the Pharisees once again. It was the critical, judgmental, self-righteous egotism of the scribes and the Pharisees that the Lord was talking against in this section. Now, since we only looked at verse 1 last time, and we you know, just wanted to lay a little foundation, let's look more closely at what Jesus said about this kind of wrongful, critical-hearted judging of others and the consequences it will have on those who practice it. Again, verse 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There are many who like to interpret this to mean that Jesus is saying, don't judge others, don't criticize others, because if you do, well, you don't, you don't want them to judge and criticize you, do you? And in some respects, that's true. I mean, critical, judgmental people are more prone to be criticized and judged by others. So that's true. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he said this. I believe what he was saying to his disciples back then and to us today is... Along these lines, he is saying to us, don't constantly go around with a critical heart looking down on everybody who doesn't belong to your group, your church, your denomination, your theological persuasion, who don't live the way you live, dress and look the way you do, and don't think the way you think about everything. Don't sit in the place of God and condemn them because they don't measure up to your standards. If you're hard on others, God will judge your life, which means your faults and failings harshly, too. And this is consistent with what James said in his epistle, chapter 2, verse 13, when he said, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what's in view there in James 2, 13, and here in Matthew 7, verse 2, 
is not ultimate judgment in hell, but severe chastening here on the earth for harsh judgmental Christians. Look, Paul the Apostle laid out a principle in Galatians 6 verse 7. He said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap, whether you're talking good or bad. Jesus applied that principle to giving in Luke 6:38, when he said, Give, and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you again, essentially saying, whatever you sow, you'll reap. And now here in Matthew 7, verse 2, he applies this principle to the showing or not showing of mercy to others. He said again in verse 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so Jesus is saying here right at the beginning of Matthew 7, Look, this is what the scribes and Pharisees do. They always go around critical of everybody else. Everybody doesn't look like them, talk like them, act like them, and so on. They look down on because they're so filled with self-righteous pride that, you know what, everybody else that doesn't measure up to their standards, they're critical of. Don't be like them. Don't follow them. Follow me. In other words, be like Jesus. Righteous, yet merciful. Holy, yet gracious. Hating sin, but loving sinners. You know, Paul put this concept into practical terms in Galatians 6, verses 1 to 3. Why don't you turn there? Jesus told us what not to do. All right, what's the flip side of the coin? What does the positive look like? What are we to do? How are we to handle people that maybe are weak and prone to failure and stumble and fall? What do we do with that, with the people like that? Well, Paul tells us. In Galatians 6, starting in verse 1, Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And so Paul is saying, look, when somebody stumbles and falls because of a fault or a weakness, don't stand over them with a critical, judgmental, pointing finger and and just put them down and condemn them. A truly spiritual person doesn't put down those who have stumbled. They reach down and help them up. That's the idea. In fact, the Greek word that is translated restore there in verse 1 if anyone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And a spirit of gentleness. The word restore there in that sentence is, was a Greek word used in antiquity for the setting of a broken bone. Therefore, the implication is that the restoration, as we seek to restore somebody, should be done gently, patiently, and with kindness. That's what God wants. He doesn't want a bunch of self-righteous, critical-hearted Christians walking around like the only army in the face of the earth that shoots its own wounded. He wants us to stoop down, show kindness, show love, say, look, I've been there. You know what? Let me tell you something. God delivered me from what you're going through. God stooped down through others to help me up when I fell. And now he's given me the strength to conquer over this area of weakness. Look, I'm here to help you now. By God's grace, I'm going to help you up. And I'm going to pray for you. 
And I'm going to encourage you because God's going to give you the strength to overcome this thing as well. That's a truly spiritual, godly, loving believer. That's what they do. Now, that last statement in Galatians 6, verse 3, where Paul said, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, that actually serves, I think, as the perfect transition or bridge from what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, to what he then went on to say. And again, let's read verses 1 and 2, where Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Look, self-righteousness and the pride that goes along with it will blind us to our true self and deceive us into thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, just as it did to the scribes and Pharisees. And that's exactly, folks, the point I believe Jesus is making when he said in verse 3, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Now, the Greek word for speck uh, means a tiny, tiny piece of wood like a splinter. Okay? The Greek word translated plank is something much bigger like a log. We would think of a telephone pole. So let me paraphrase this. Jesus is saying, and why do you look at the splinter? In your brother's eye, but don't consider you got a telephone pole hanging out of your own eyes. Now, I don't know if the Lord had a smirk on his face when he said that. I find it funny. Look, many people interpret the speck and log to represent small and large sins. And, and you know, in some ways that's true. But again, I don't believe that that's what Jesus only had in mind here. The reason I say that is this. Because those people who are prone to be critical of others are not always the biggest sinners per se. At least not outwardly. Of course, in the heart's a different matter. The speck, I do believe, represents the faults and flaws of others, which the Pharisees were very critical of. But I believe the log represents self-righteous pride, the kind that the scribes and Pharisees had, which, folks, listen, is the biggest sin of all. Pride was the sin that caused all the mess in all the universe. It started in heaven when Lucifer in his pride said, I don't want to be number two. I want to be like the Most High. And he fell, came to earth and convinced Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. And in her pride, wanting to be like God, she ate and gave to Adam and he did eat. And here we are, right? So I think pride is the mother of all sins. That's why it's the biggest sin. Now, Jesus spoke of it being in the eye because it's with the eye that we look at ourselves and others. And the greater the pride, folks, and self-righteousness, the bigger the log in your spiritual eyes. And the bigger the log in your, of pride and self-righteousness in your spiritual eyes, the more it will blind you from seeing yourself honestly, which makes you and I incapable then of helping anyone else see and live properly from a spiritual standpoint. You know, the thing about self-righteous pride is the bigger it is, the more, yes, it blinds us to our own faults and sins. That's true. But look, the more perceptive and therefore critical 
it will make you to the sins and faults of others. And I think that was the real point that Jesus is making here. Look, the only way you would ever see a speck in someone else's eye would be for you to really be concentrating and focusing all your attention on them, right? And if you're focusing all your attention, I mean, if you are really studying their life, like under a microscope, if all your focus and attention is on somebody else looking for any fault that you might find in their life, guess what? None of your attention is focusing on your own faults. So therefore you're blind to your true self. Jesus said again in verse 3, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Listen, but do not consider the plank in your own eye. The word consider is a Greek word that means serious consideration and prolonged meditation. It's the same Greek word used in James chapter 1, verse 23, when James said, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking, same Greek word as consider, at his own face in a mirror, which means to gaze steadily at and consider each feature in detail. Jesus is saying that we have to look long and hard at our own pride and self-righteous attitudes and remove them first before we're ever going to be able to help anyone else live for God. And that's what Jesus went on to say in verse 5 when he said, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, folks, that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect before we can help somebody else. It does mean, though, that our hearts must be right when we approach someone else. That love and not proud self-righteousness is what's motivating us. And this is something that we, that's what we need to consider ourselves. Take a good hard look at where our heart is at. Because, you know, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. You know, we think we're doing things for the right motivation. But if we take a little time to examine our hearts, ask the Lord to reveal to us, what's motivating me here, Lord? Am I motivated to help this person correct an area of their life because I really love them and want to see them be all that they can be for you? Or am I doing it because I love myself? And by condescending to them, it helps to reinforce my self-righteous feelings of spiritual superiority over them. See how subtle that is? We think we're so, you know, we only want to help people. Really? Well, maybe. You know, I think sometimes we do. But maybe some of it is we enjoy taking the superior position and saying, let me help you poor sinner up. Someday you might be like me, walking in such holiness and all, but... You know, let me let me let me help you. It's just a very condescending, uh, a very uh, uh, self-righteous attitude. Look, I'm convinced there's nothing more vile and disgusting to God than the blind self-righteous pride that goes around condemning and then condescending to everyone else, while thinking itself spiritually superior and more righteous than everyone else. Now remember once again. That when Jesus said in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, he wasn't condemning all judging of another's life. He makes that clear in verse 5 when he went on to say, first remove the plank or the log from your own eye, and listen, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Again, this is proving that he wasn't condemning all or forbidding all judgment. Look, it's only a speck, right? You got the log maybe. Well, deal with the log first, first things first. But that doesn't mean God wants a speck in somebody else's eye either, though. 
And so even though it's only a speck in someone's eye, it's still a foreign object that must be removed. But again, first things first. First, let's judge and examine ourselves. Let's humble ourselves before God and get our rights, our hearts right with him first. And then we can approach a brother or sister in the right motive, with the right heart, a spirit of love. Now, let me just say this. You need to avoid two potential pitfalls when you enter into self-examination. That's what we're talking about, right? Examine yourself first before you go to somebody else and, you know, help them with the speck in their eye. There's two pitfalls you need to avoid when entering into self-examination. What some have called the deception of shallow examination and the preoccupation of excessive examination. Both are wrong. The deception of shallow examination says, well, look, I'll check my life. Yes, I'm good. You know, just quick, give me a quick glance over. Yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to examine myself. Look, yeah, good, I'm good. Okay, and I'm going to go and let them have it because, you know, I'm right. And that's deceptive, isn't it? What did, again, what did we just say about we are to consider ourselves? We are to take a good, hard, long, honest look at ourselves first. You know, when I see somebody else living in sin, I need to really ask myself, am I involved in that sin in any way, shape, or form? No, I'm maybe not physically engaging in it, but in my heart, am I thinking about it and wanting to do it, but too afraid of the consequences if I do, but it's in my heart. Very important that we look honestly at ourselves. Shallow self-examination is deceptive. But then you have this preoccupation with excessive examination of oneself is what author Warren Worsby called the perpetual autopsy approach. Where I'm always dissecting myself, every little motive, every little thing I do, always got myself under the microscope and chopping myself up and, and, and overanalyzing every little thing I do and say, and pretty soon I'm just so preoccupied with me, I can't be a benefit to anybody else. Those are both wrong. There's a balance there. Now, I want to just say this, be warned. Even if you go to somebody in love with only their best interests at heart, you've checked your heart, your heart is right, you really only want to help them walk with God, and you, you go to them, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that they're going to receive what you have to say, even if it's true. I mean, look, a person must be willing to have the speck removed from their eye if you're going to be able to help them. And unfortunately, folks, many in the body of Christ today are simply not willing to receive any kind of correction or instruction. And that's sad. Let me read you a few scriptures. We don't have time to turn to these, but just if you want to write them down. A few scriptures from Psalms and Proverbs that kind of touch on this subject. Proverbs 9, verse 8. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. A scoffer is somebody that's always an unbeliever, of course, always putting down the Christian faith, mocking Christianity, mocking the things of God, mocking the word of God. Don't go to them and try to correct them from the word of God. Let God deal with them. they got a much bigger problem than whatever little side sin they're involved with at that moment. The real issue is, you know what? They don't know God is the real issue. But if you rebuke a wise man, he said, it will, uh, he will love you. You can always tell a wise, spirit-filled, mature Christian because when you have to go to them and even rebuke them, they take it to heart and make the changes. You know, Paul had to rebuke Peter, the apostle Peter to his face. Because the day before... Peter was in Paul's hometown, his home church. 
And Peter was with the Gentile believers and having a good time and so on and so forth. Then when these big shots from Jerusalem came, he withdrew from the Gentiles and only sat with them. And Paul said, I rebuked him to his face. And what did Peter do? He received it. He received it. And even wrote about it later on. Our brother Paul has sometimes hard things to say, but listen to him. That's a humble person. That's a person that, look, is not perfect. None of us are. But when they're doing something wrong and somebody says, man, that's wrong. You know better than that. Yeah, I do. You're right. And they repent and make the right changes. Psalm 141, verse 5. The psalmist said, let the righteous strike me. No, not literally. Let them nail me with the truth, right? If I'm not living rightly, man, hit me with it. All right? Let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. That's a godly man who understands, look, I'm not perfect. And when I need correction, I want it because I want to walk with God. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Look, you know what? Your best friends in the body of Christ, we're all family, but we have friends, right? Who are family. Your best friends are not the ones who will tell you always what you want to hear. They'll tell you what you need to hear. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. It may hurt, but you know what? If it's true, take it to heart and make the changes. You only, only hang around with people that always, as, as he says here, we would say, can I kiss up to you, Right? But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. People that are always trying to tell you what you want to hear, they're not your friends. They're not your friends. Proverbs 13, verse 18. Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction. But he who regards rebuke will be honored. Proverbs 15, verse 32. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. I'll give you one more. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. I'll tell you what. While it's true that the song of fools may be more pleasant to the ears, the rebuke of the wise is more profitable to the soul, if you're humble enough to receive it. Now, let me bring this to a close by saying this. As we said earlier, and especially last week, there is a righteous judgment... There are things that we are to judge. Some of the things we talked about last time as we looked at various scriptures, we are to judge false doctrine. We are to judge immorality. We are to judge those who try to cause division in the body of Christ. We are to judge false teachers and whatever else the Bible specifically condemns. But there are things then that we must not judge. In some ways, we must not judge. Let me give you quickly these. There's eight of them. First of all, I must not judge based on rumor as if it were fact. That's why gossip is so dangerous and so destructive. And it's a big problem for God's people. All of us fall into it from time to time. Gossip is basically passing rumors around, rumors that people will then assume are true. They make judgments about your life that are often untrue. And as they pass those judgments along to others, you've been tried and convicted and you haven't even had a hearing you haven't even been able to really answer the accusations and clear your name. So I must not judge based on rumor as if it were fact. I must never judge another person's motives. We saw this last time. Look, judge nothing before the time, Paul said, until the Lord comes. 
who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of the heart, and then God will give each one his reward and praise. So only God is qualified to judge the motives of the heart. Therefore, when somebody is serving God or doing something good for others, you can't say, ah, they're only doing it because they want people to know how nice they are. Well, you know, you don't know their heart. Don't judge what they're doing based on what you don't know. Number three, I must never judge hypocritically. What does that mean? (laughs) Judging others for the same sins I am unwilling to deal with. As we said last week, I like to quote my pastor who uh, likes to say, it's amazing how bad my sins look when you're committing them. You know, when I'm committing them, they don't look that bad. I mean, I'm pretty pretty gracious with myself, pretty patient. When you're committing my sins, eh, not so much. I'm a lot harder on you, right, than I am. You know, we're a lot harder on others than we are of ourselves oftentimes. So look, again, don't stand over somebody who has fallen in sin with a self-righteous condemning finger. But as Paul said in Galatians 6, stoop down, encourage them. Say, look, I, I love you. And you know what? You're growing. I know God's working. He's working in my life. He's, you know, he's given me victory over this area. Or I'm still struggling with it, but you know what? We're going to bind together in prayer for each other. God's going to give us grace to conquer this. Number four, I must never judge hastily and superficially without having all the facts. We Christians are famous for this. A rush to judgment. Get a little information. Man, we run with it. We know the whole story now. You know? And it's wrong. Lives get destroyed by, by that kind of thing. Number five, I must never judge based on my own standards instead of what the Bible says. This is also a big one among Christians. Look, we're all different. Isn't that beautiful about the body of Christ? We're all diverse. We're, we're all different people. And there are some brothers and sisters in the Lord who come from very straight-laced churches. In fact, I actually had a couple come here years ago, and when they saw how everyone was dressed, they said, we can't stay here. We, we can't fellowship here. You, just, you, you people are not dressed properly for church. Properly was long skirt to them. Uh, at that time, a three-piece suit. Look, I'm not saying we should come here dressed immorally, of course. But, you know, we're casual. All right? Some people have uh, come here with a suit jacket on, tie. Others come with a T-shirt, says, I love Jesus. I don't care. Again, God looks at the heart. And a lot of Christians don't see it that way, though. They judge others based on appearance, like Jesus forbid. And because they think a Christian should look, you know, here's how Christians look. Short hair, uh, come to church with a suit on and a tie and so on. They look down on those people who are Christians who have long hair, have tattoos, and maybe come to church not dressed like they dress. And so they want to judge them. Oh, can they even be saved? Okay, well... Maybe, I don't know, maybe you're not saved. I don't know. All that judging, you sound like a Pharisee now. Number six, I must never judge unfairly because, quote, <laughs> I don't like them anyway, so they must be guilty, end quote. And we do that too, don't we? I know I've probably done it, you know. I, mean, I don't really care for them that much. Well, this is all about learning to love each other. And God will put, you know, we're, <laughs> as the Bible says, um, Iron sharpeneth iron, right? Sure, we come together, we're going to rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes sparks fly. But God puts us together because he wants to hone each one of us. 
He wants to wear off the rough edges of self-righteousness and, and um, intolerance and judgmentalism. And he wants us to really learn how to be a family, even though we're different. Very important, you know. So let's not judge people, you know, and say, well, they must be guilty because I don't really care for them anyways. Number seven, I must never judge someone unmercifully. Unmercifully. Well, what does that mean? Well, there are some Christians, you know, when other Christians stumble and fall, they want God to get out the big guns and just blast them. Lord, wipe them out. Destroy them. Ruin them. Lord, take away their ministry. Give them financial ruin. Thinking, whoa. I mean, wow. Uh, You know, with the same measure of mercy you show others, we measure it back to you again. I'll tell you what, I want mercy from God All right, when I blow it. Therefore, I'm not going to be too hard on you guys. I mean, for your faults, no, because look, we all need mercy from God when we blow it. But some people, man, it's just like, as soon as a Christian stumbles in some way, Lord, get the big guns out and let them have it. Well, God said, well, if you want me to be that hard on them when they fail, I'll be that hard on you when you fail. What does that do? It makes me a lot more humble, a lot more merciful, a lot more like Jesus. Better to just start off trying to act like Jesus, right? By God's grace. And then number eight, I must never judge another in the present because of the things they have done to hurt me in the past. That's an important one. You know, Catherine Marshall in her book, Something More, suggests that, and I quote, forgiveness is releasing another from your own personal judgment, end quote. And she went on to say, Taking your personal judgment off a person doesn't mean you agree with what he has said or done. It simply means you will not act as his judge. You will not pronounce a guilty verdict on him, end quote. Now look, if you practice these things, if you make these changes, it will dramatically affect all your other human relationships, including how patient and merciful God will be with you when you fail in an area of your Christian life. And I think that that's what Jesus was really trying to say here. You're all sinners saved by grace. Why are sinners pointing a condemning finger at sinners? We're all in this together. We all blow it. None of us are perfect. Instead of criticizing and judging each other because you're not perfect, well, I'm not perfect either. Instead of going around with a critical, judgmental attitude, putting everybody down doesn't look like me, dress like me, talk like me, or hang around with the same people as me, let's understand we're all members of God's family, and we need to learn to love each other. No matter what you look like. I love it when God brings into churches, you know, some people that wear a suit on Sunday morning and a long dress, maybe. Not a guy, but a girl. Um, And then you have somebody comes in with a biker jacket on, you know, and... Maybe a couple tattoos shown. and Or maybe somebody else comes in with pink hair and, you know. And we all sit down and worship together. If anybody in the world comes in and sees that, they're like, wow. What has caused all these different people to come together in one church? It's Jesus. Because we love each other. Jesus Christ has broken out all the barriers. Now, we don't have to walk in that unity. We can still find fault with each other. But Jesus says, don't do that. Follow my example. I love people who society had rejected. I love the tax collectors and the harlots and the broken and the downtrod and the failures. That's what I want you to do when you go out into the world. I want, Especially in the church. 
Follow my example. Of course, this teaching is going to culminate in verse 12. When Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We'll study that more in detail when we get there, but it's called, we call it the golden what? The golden rule. Folks, let me just say this. If we could apply just that one principle into our Christian lives, you tell me how it wouldn't impact every other relationship we have. If we always treated others the way we would want them to treat us, it would revolutionize the church of Jesus Christ in America. Something to think about. And as we move through this now in chapter 7, and Jesus is going to be dealing with these issues, going to be teaching us how to just really think of others and how we would treat them the way they would want, we would want them to treat us. So God give us grace as we go through this. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. Lord, you have been so patient, so merciful, so gracious, so kind with us. Forgive us for being hard, judgmental, and critical hearted with others. Lord, we sometimes forget what you delivered us out of. And after we've been Christians for a while, we tend to look at new Christians who are still struggling with cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, or something else, pornography. And we tend to begin to want to become Pharisees, looking down on them. Well, if they were really a Christian, they wouldn't do these things. Forgetting that, we were once in bondage to similar things ourselves. You don't call any of us to sit in judgment, Lord, as you sit in judgment. Only you can judge the heart. You call us to stoop down to pick up the brokenhearted, to encourage those that are struggling, to tell them, look, God loves you. He knew every sin you were ever going to commit before he ever saved you. Nothing you do surprises him. It can grieve him. It doesn't take him by surprise. And knowing all your sins before he ever created you, now that you've received him as your Savior and Lord, well, he's not going to disown you. But he will work with you. God is not against us for our sins. He is for us against sin. Thank you, Father. Help us to understand that. And we just praise you for this teaching. We know that Jesus is really putting his finger on a big problem in our lives. So thank you, Father. We ask you to give us grace to apply this into our lives now. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.